I hope this is right. I don't want to spend much time on on Bert Norton because I I I really want to try to give more time than I usually would give to three stories like this because they are so dark and in in so many ways revealing of something problems in the American character but but in my mind contradictions that I don't think we often see so I'd like to try to spend more time than I would have going through those three stories to lay them out so that we all have a hold of them and then I want to leave a good amount of time at the end to put some questions to you guys because I'd like to hear what your thoughts are but in order to do that I want to I, we have to cover these stories a little bit more thoroughly than I would like but so I'm going to make everything else as brief as I can let's look at Bert Norton just very very quickly and let me set out some of the larger issues here so that you can keep them in your mind when you think about Bert Norton and as you go forward when you look at East Coker, Drive Salvages, and Little Gidding, the, the last three quartets. Remember, the analog is to music. Eliot was very serious about this. He understood it, he wrote about it. He has a, a work called The Music of Poetry in which he talks about the analogies between poetry and music. And he's convinced that, that the analogies between music and poetry are real and serious. He makes clear that one of his concerns is if, if poets, artists, try to take those analogies too seriously, that they end up creating works that are too artificial. And he had to struggle with that as a poet. He had to, he had to do constant revisions on his work to avoid that. I'm not sure that this was on its on his mind, but I'm going to throw this out because I think it might have been. It may not have been, but he read Joyce, seriously. He, he saw the importance of James Joyce, who was writing at his time. And Joyce's Ulysses, which was the book that Faulkner um, learned most from as an artist, Joyce's portrait of an artist in his book Ulysses, Faulkner cut his teeth on those work. They, they really taught him what to do as a writer. So I think he went beyond Joyce, but technically nobody, nobody went beyond Joyce in the 20th century. Just as an example, in, in Joyce's Ulysses, every one of his chapters, there are 18, 15 chapters, it's modeled on Homer's The Odyssey. The, the Odysseus character is a Jewish figure called Leopold Bloom. Bloom, he's a comic, funny guy who lives in Dublin. That's, that's what the, it's one day in the life of Leopold Bloom. There are all sorts of analogies to the Trinity, a trinity of characters, Bloom, his wife Molly, and Stephen Dedalus, who's an artist figure. One of the chapters, the, the siren chapter, if I remember, it's modeled on the siren chapter in Odysseus's Journey's Home, is modeled on a, on a, Bach, a Bach fugue. What Joyce is trying to do is present a narrative so that certain, we're to understand as reader that certain things are happening simultaneously even though we're reading linearly. Now imagine the job that a writer, if you think Sound of the Fury was hard with the Bansy <coughs> episode, try reading Joyce's Ulysses. In that, in that episode, like others, 
one of his analogs is music, and he, and he develops that with a fugue mode. So he's breaking it into parts and, and, and trying to do it in a way so that we have to put things together so that we, we hold on to the simultaneity of events even though we read them linearly. Is that clear? Imagine how hard that is for a writer. Eliot's aware of that. So when he, when he, when he talks about music, he's very serious. He didn't name the four quartets casually. This is not a, he's too much of an artist. So remember that the four quartets are modeled on musical quartets, and there's a great variety of forms of them. The opening section introduces a theme, and then each following section plays a variation on it, does something with it, varies, varies the focus, the tempo, the rhythms, and you know that now because the rhythms in each section are very radically different, noticeably different. So we have to be aware of the correspondence between what's going on in the poem and music. And remember, music is not words, it's sounds. So sounds appeal more immediately to our emotions than words do, because words appeal more directly to our minds, what our minds can grasp. And he's trying to resolve those, bring those together. So one of the things we should remember is that, that correspondence. The other are some of the things. I've, I've tried articulating the, the major theme. It seems to me it's this, this still point, this intersection between the temporal order and the eternal, between time and eternity, that point. And, and it raises certain problems, questions for him, because just for example, if you take the Eucharist, or if you believe in God, let's just say you believe in God, you don't even take the Eucharist. If you believe in God, more importantly, if you take the Eucharist, say, in that moment of taking the Eucharist, or in a moment of faith when something happens, and you really have fully entered into a, a moment of revelation, where are you in that moment? Is it sufficient to say, it's here? If, if you're a part of Christ, let me take the analogy with the Eucharist because it's a little bit clear. If you take the Eucharist and you understand that with Christ in you, in, in us, that the kingdom is present in us, that we are a part of that kingdom, then with respect to this time and timeless, this intersecting point, where are we? Can you identify us in time or place? I hope you see the problem. Because to begin to grapple with that means we can no longer just read literally, although we can't, because remember, he said, only in time is time redeemed. We can't ever escape time, and it'll only be through time that we're redeemed, so we have to hold on to the literal moment, what's going on. We can't get off on our heads like angels. But where exactly are we? So he tackles that problem from a variety of points of view, different figures. Some of the major ones are the garden, because when we go back to the garden, we're answering this longing in the soul for every one of us to return to Eden, that completeness that we all, that we all want, hunger for, and the New Jerusalem, which is its fulfillment. So two of the one of the major images of the four quartets is the garden. Its antitype is the city, the underground tunnel. Remember where the lights flicker and everything's mechanical and it's that darkness, it's that desiccation. And interesting, the, the, the tunnel, if you think about it, is circular, just like nature, except it's mechanical, yeah? So one of the 
contrasting themes in Burt Norton is the difference between the garden and the city. Another one is between the sunlight and darkness. Remember in the opening when they look down into the pool and there's that flash of sunlight and then the sun goes down in that small section? There are these moments of illumination when the sun comes and what happens in the poem we're supposed to see as a revelation of truth. It's a moment of illumination. We've all had those moments. But Eliot's really clear. Very often people have moments of illumination that are really illusory, illusions. Because religious-minded people are quick to make claims about illuminations. Like other things in the story, it's a question, is it real or not? How do we know? Where are we? Because so often in this world, we're between worlds. It's, a, it's hard to get a hold of exactly where we are. So those are the, the light and the darkness, the city and the garden, and all of the music elements, and most particularly the dance. Because that dance image is, is one of the ones that most closely approximates the struggle that we have with each other in connection with this still point. Where the dance, remember, I'll read it again, but remember, where the dance is, I cannot tell you where, because that's to fix it. And remember, every one of those motions, the vase, the staircase, um, the wheel, the, um, what am I missing? The dance, violin. huh? Violin. Well, the violin, except the note went out on that. He, he said it's not that, it was the other, the violin's close to it. But all of those things assume a steel point. That all motion, all activity assumes an unmoved mover, a still point. Now just hold on to that. Okay? Otherwise we go on endlessly with motion and we can't explain it. There has to be an unmoved mover, a still point, that's the source of all movement. So over and over and over again, he keeps showing us that, that this still point is present everywhere. Okay? So let me just read some of the some of the, from some of the passages just briefly to try to hold some of it together and then next week we'll go on to East Coker. Remember he opens with these very philosophic statements about time. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. And this is the other thing, I knew there was something. Remember all of the images of things that are no longer here, but that are here. The echo, remember, is not real, it's a reflection of something that's more real. The, the flower, the potpourri, the flower is still present, the bowl of potpourri. The scent is there even though the flower is dead. Burnt Norton was a, was a manor house that was burned down. It, it's gone, but still there. So how many things that have died off are still in some ways present? That, that, that all of the poem is holding on to these sort of mystical experiences that most people treat in terms of black and white and so push each other out. He's trying to find the way in which they're connected. We, we have to try to hold on to this sense that there's more there in front of us than appears to our senses. 
what might have been, what has been, point to one end, which is always present, footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we are never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose? Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. There are all these things. Then we go into the garden, remember, um, look into the pool, um, and then suddenly the light comes. Um, the, the guests are there. My sense is those are images of Adam and Eve, our parents, that are shadowy. Um, there they were as our guests, accepted and accepting, so we moved and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley into the box circle to look down into the drained pool, dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Sometimes the sun is too bright for us. He gives the image of the garlic and sapphires, the, all of the contradictory things, the patterns that are, remember, time, as we experience, it seems cyclical. That's the way the pig, right? Winter's about, uh, falls here, winter's will be upon us, it'll be followed by spring. We live in cyclical patterns. Every year, annually, we go through the same pattern. So there's this rotating, secular character, everything that happens in nature. And it's true in the constellations. So um, he, he describes these various patterns that are everywhere existing. We move above the moving tree and light upon the figured leaf and here upon the sodden floor below the boar hound and the boar pursue their pattern as before, but reconciled among the stars. They're fixed again, even with their motion. And we know the violence of the boar hound and the boar chase. Even though it's presented somewhat neatly here, we know that it refers to something bloody. The dance along the artery, the circulation of the lymph are figured in the drift of stars. There's this pattern to everything in nature. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where and I cannot say how long, for that's to place it in time. Remember this stanch image, it's, it's, and remember what he says, it's not movement and it's not fixity, it's something else. So he's constantly asking us to take the terms of our experience here, to treat them as real, and know that there's always something more. It, that that is what is, like that is truth or love. Truth and love combined together, what is at the still point? Yes, if that's what you're saying, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if yes, that, for sure. you could say that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
in, in, in simple terms, absolutely. Because remember, later on, he will talk about desire and saying desire is not love. And I think we talked about that. Desire is always in motion. It's heading towards an end. Love is still. There's no motion in God. God is complete. So <laughs> the struggle that we're confronted with is reconciling all that we do that's characterized by desire and motion and movement, while all the time we're struggling to love, to be still, to be complete, to be one with Christ, with God, who is the truth. So the still point, I mean, th those couldn't more completely describe the, the still point, the terms of it, love and truth, uh, particularly in terms of the poem here. Um, he says that this is a place of disaffection and, and notice the wind in and out of unwholesome lungs time before and time after. This is a place of before and after. The world that we live in lives in the past looking forward to a future, but rarely in the now. That's an occupation for saints and prophets. And he describes it in the tube. says, descend lower, descend only into the world of perpetual solitude, world, not world, but that which is not world. By the way, I hope you all hear the pun on world. Does everybody hear that? World and not world. I mean, that's a, that's a pun on the still point. Whirling, yes? Still. World, not world, but that which is not world, internal darkness, deprivation, destitution, this is the one way and the other. That is, if you enter into the, the, the subway, the dark world, or, or our world, this place of dis disaffection, we're, we're never in that sunlight. Look at the beginning of three. Here is a place of disaffection, time before and time after, in a dim light. Neither daylight investing form with lucid stillness, that is, the sunlight isn't there to remind us of this still point, this, these moments of illumination, the, the, where, where we suddenly see this um, rest in motion, um, in a dim light, neither daylight investing form with lucid stillness, turning shadow into transient beauty, that's what light does, the truth of it, with slow rotation suggesting permanence, nor darkness to purify the soul. That is, those are the two ways. I've talked of the way of affirmation, and the way of negation. Dante's way, the, the way of St. John of the Cross. The way of affirmation, the way of negation. The way of light, of images, the way of darkness, to enter into the dark night of the soul. So here, in the darkness of this world, is neither one of them. It doesn't, in, there's no light there to invest the darkness, nor darkness to purify the soul, emptying the sensual with deprivation. Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by... I love that line. Do any of us ask ourselves enough how much that defines our lives? Distracted from distraction by distraction. How, how many of us constantly fill our lives with noise, chatter, busyness, TV, radio, something in the background to keep us from being aware that we're not in the present moment. 
Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strain, time-ridden faces distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty meaning. So this is the darkness of our world, yes? It's not, he says, descend lower. If we're to deal with this, we have to go into another kind of darkness. That's the darkness of the cross, St. John of the Cross. Into the world of perpetual solitude, world not world, internal darkness, deprivation, destitution of all, that is, we have to give up everything. Desiccation of the world of sense, evacuation of the world of fancy, inoperancy of the world of spirit. This is the one way, and the other is the same, not in movement, but abstention from movement. While the world moves in appetency on its meddled ways of time past, how many of us are fixed in ways of meddled ways in this world? And think about America as a country, how driven we are. Is there any other word to use to describe it except movement, constant movement? Does it ever get to an end? I've said this before, one of the qualities of the commercial regime, because the, the basis of the commercial regime is consuming things, consumerism depends on constantly creating um, things that consumers want so that they're constantly encouraged to desire something and as soon as they to get it, to desire more. So we live, we live in a world in, in which we manufacture, we proliferate means. We keep means going and never come to an end. If, if desires are constantly stimulated and put in motion and never answered, how do we ever learn to love? Because love in itself means having come to a rest. It's a completion. To love another for another's good, not for more. So he's describing a darkness beneath the city that's, that's darker than the darkness of the world. Section four gives us that, those images of the sun going out, the light, the, the darkness coming, and then he says, after the kingfisher's wing is answered light to light, and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. That's where the light is. I think it goes to what you were saying, Joan. That's the truth, that's the light. And then in section five, as he does in almost all the quartets as I remember them, I have to, he, he takes up the subject of words and places words in this context of motion and still point. We, we went over this with all the images, the jar, the Chinese jar, the wheel, the dance, the steps, all images of things that involve motion that depend on a still point. The word in the desert is most attacked by voices and temptation, the crying shadow in the funeral dance, the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. I'm gonna go out of limb here and I don't wanna start a fight, but let me, I, I think what he's saying is in the funeral dance that, that there are still voices of grief that are louder than the, the voices that faith should bring to a funeral. Because when somebody dies, we grieve do we feel the trust in God that in that death somebody's going to a better world? Is joy, hope, trust a part of our experience of funerals? And I really believe the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera are all the, 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 the fittest image of that for me is politicians. They are constantly fighting with each other. Take the current Democrats and politicians, or Republicans, constantly going on, unable to, 
to see much good to say because neither one of them is getting done what they want to get done. They all, they all believe that it, with this political platform, this will happen. We'll have a better world. And it goes on. It never stops. It will never stop because we will never be able to bring in a political world that will match up in any way with heaven. So there are all these voices. You can, I'm sure you can find other examples, but all these voices of the chimera, of what's unreal. Because we love the wrong things, we expect too much of them and then end up disconsolate constantly bothered. The detail of the pattern is movement, as in the figure of the stairs, he goes on. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. He goes on and returns us to the garden. Even while the dust moves, there rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage. Quick now, here, now, always. Ridiculous, the way sad time stretching before and after. That's a, that's a dark note. How ridiculous it is. To, what a waste of our life to live before and after. How easy it is, is it to, to, to live with this still point? I'm assuming we all know how hard that is. Okay. Next week we'll start East Coker. I would like to ask you all to read Bert Norton again through from beginning to end and then read East Coker from beginning to end. Just read it through and we'll do what we've been doing. We'll read the first section next week and then take up each section in the following weeks. Okay, very, very quickly. I want to... Um, um, Last week, I, I reminded everybody of the classical influences that, that were at play in what Eudora Welty was doing with her stories. Um, and I mentioned a number of Circe, Calypso, the Lestrigonese Queen, who was larger than a mountain, the Siren, skilled at Charybdis, and most of all, the Medusa. She's the one that figures most explicitly in The Petrified Man. Um, and we looked at the, the two stories, the, the why I live at the post office and Petrified Man. And, and what we saw is um, really mean-spirited women, how, how vicious sometimes women could be in their cattiness. And the, the women in both stories act innocent. They act like they're not doing anything, with, which makes what they do in some ways more vicious because they seem like they're doing nothing. Um, and they're frightening creatures to look at. And then we talked about Petrified Man and, and how it ends. And, maybe sadly how prophetic that is. Billy's getting spanked and we wonder if he isn't going to be the next Mr. Petri and how that's going to play out. Um, I want to go back for a minute before we turn to, uh, uh, and we, we've, got to, we've got to look at uh, E.B. White, but um, I want to go back for a moment. I introduced the, a Christian perspective on things and recalled some things in Dante, the, the importance of the siren and the Medusa and Dante's work and their significance. One of the central images that I wanted to call to mind everybody was the contrast between Eve before the fall and Eve after and Mary. And I want to hold that up today because it seems to be in an American culture we there remember one of the one of the questions I raised coming out of Sound of the Fury. When we lose that chivalry code, when that medieval Catholic chivalry code goes Quentin's gone, Caddy's promiscuous and off. 
if you read Faulkner's notes in his appendix that go beyond the story, he says that Caddy ended up marrying a Hollywood executive producer. They were married for five years and divorced, and then she went off and married a, a, an officer in the German army. I mean, the, her, her future was really dark. And Quinton's doesn't give much promise of being different. So, and I ask the question, when you take away that chivalric ideal, what do men do? If the ideal in America is get a job and have a career, make money, is that sufficient? Will that answer everything that's human? The Christian worldview assumed that there was something more, that, that marriage was a sacrament, that we entered into marriage to be with Christ, to, to make him present in our lives. Take that away, and what are marriages? What are marriages? They're, they're, they're social contracts. And we're seeing the effects of that play out, particularly in, in these Hemingway works. I, I offered the, the, the contrast between Eve before the fall and after and Mary. And it seems to me one of the things we can say about Eve is that before the fall, she was in perfect accord with Adam and God. The, they, everything they do is in harmony. Um, let me go back and take this up for a minute because I think this is really important and it's, it's, it's important to get, a, I think, a broader view. You can call it philosophic or theological. Everybody think about this just for a second. In the Trinity, in the tri if we're made in the image of God, our God is not a solitary God. I hope that's evident to everybody. The Jews believe in a solitary God. He's alone. The Muslims believe in a solitary God. He's alone in his desert. Allah is there. Or Yahweh. The God for the Christian world is not a solitary God. He's a communal God. He's one of three who share the same nature. One nature, three persons. There's one Godhead. Three, it takes three forms. That's a scandal to the Muslim. The idea that God would have a companion scandals to them. But stop and think about the implications of that for us if we're made in his image. That means as human beings made in an image where we are in essence, in essence, communal. Absolutely communing. That's defined by our nature. We were meant to love and be loved. That's in our nature. Now, tell me the nature of the modern marriage and the way the modern marriage of man and woman enter into that as a contract. It's a social contract. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. There's nothing like that said in the Bible. Here's the interesting thing. Before the fall, and wait, let me finish. So Eve before the fall, Eve after. After the relationships between her and Adam are obviously strained. And I want to get to that for a moment. But, but one of the ways in which we can look at Eve after the fall is that in some way, she continues to do things innocently. That's what we see with the women in Eudora Welty's world, all of them. We'll see it here in Hemingway's world, too. So one of the ways in which we can see that the implications of that is looking at Eve as doing things in innocent when she's no longer innocent, and Mary, who almost does nothing that doesn't involve her in suffering. Mary's obedient, she does the will of God, she says yes, even when she doesn't know it's going to be asked of her. So just keep that in mind just for a second. The, important, the importance of that for however we look at woman after the fall. 
Here's what I wanted to focus on just for a moment today. If we go back to the Trinity, this is what we understand. I, I was going to, next week I'll bring it. There's this extraordinary um, explication of the Trinity by St. Thomas, <laughs> where, he's, where he says basically, I don't know what physicists would do this, but, and I don't have, I meant I forgot to bring the quote, but he says one and three are equal in some sense. I, I don't have it right, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it next week. Because in God, they're one and three at the same time. I've got to bring it. But the point I don't want to lose is this. There's no desire between them. They are each of them complete in their love because love in God is complete. So in whatever is reciprocal, it's love offered to love freely. That's the nature of the divine love. I hope that's clear. They don't do it to get a reward or they don't get it they don't offer it to complete themselves because they're already complete. Yes, that's the nature of love. It's unmoved. There's no longing, no desire. They're if, there's any, if they're less than complete, it means there's something else besides them. And that can't be by definition. God is complete in himself. What happens after the fall? Before the fall, it's really clear that Adam and Eve loved each other completely. They didn't, they didn't have to love in order to get something. They were complete in each other. There was nothing lacking. They were made in the image of God. After they turned from God, the love that was meant to be fulfilled in him is shattered. And now what they do is love things in the wrong way and for themselves. So an element of selfishness enters in to us as humans in the way that we love. I hope that's clear. We don't love the way God does. I mean, the whole, it seems to me, the whole business of it, I mean, the whole work ahead of us in the church is to try to love like Christ, to love, to offer our lives for another, man and woman, not for ourselves, whatever burdens. I mean, I, I don't want to go into that because it's, you know, it's, it's different in all cases, but that's what we're called to do. I hope that's clear. The love before the fall was a very different. They loved God as they should have. When they broke from him and, and turned their love away from him, something inordinate, unlawful, entered into their loves. They would love the wrong things, the wrong ways, and there would be something selfish, self-centered in the love because they turned away from him. So what, enter, what enters into the human being after the fall is something basically selfish. I'm not a Protestant. I don't believe that the fall was complete, that we are inherently, essentially depraved. The Catholic understanding, you know, is the essence of our nature was protected. It's still there. But we are wounded. Concupiscence entered into us. A wrong kind of love. And that's what we're seeing in these stories. Again and again and again. Loves drinking, promiscuity, self-pity, and I don't want to go on it because we've gone through it, but it was you know, a pretty dark reading. But, but the question that I've been raising for the last couple of weeks is, how do we look at America? What are these writers showing us in a world without God? Take God out of the picture, and what do humans do with their love? That's so I just wanted to introduce that. So we had the classical view that I went over briefly, some of the things, and the Christian view and some of the things that we take from that in the way that we look at 
these stories and, and our own human nature. Let me stop for a minute because I, I, I hope that was clear. Do you, anybody, is that clear? Any questions or? Another aspect of it that I saw coming out in all of those stories that we read was just, especially with Faulkner, is that, that the, the, the image of woman as life giver, she, that there's a, it, she represents the community, the womb, the womb, you know, like the church is the womb that brings Christ forth. And so these communities that we, like in Faulkner, the Sound and the Fury, the communities are so corrupt. And and it, it's and so it, it's interesting to just think of how unless you protect your women, you, your your communities are going to get corrupt and produce bad fruit. Yeah, I, yes, for sure. I'm glad you brought that up, Jim, because the the woman is the she's the protector of life. It's through her that life comes. So yeah. if if there's any vision of woman in the modern world that doesn't protect that. And it's, it's certainly from my position. It's not, it's not seeing woman as she really is. It wants woman to be something different from what she is by nature because she, she's the principle of continuity in life. It's through her. But the other thing that I, I don't want to lose sight of here is that it's not just that she should be protected. She should. It's that what the stories are showing us, and that's why I brought the classical images up, Remember in Calypso and Circe, they are both very possessive in, in the way that they respond to Odysseus. And, and that's, we see that in the women themselves. There's some, if, if, if woman doesn't learn to deal with that, what will happen to the life she brings in? Look at Billy Boy I mean, at the end. So there's a, there's a large problem. It's not only, I mean, one of the responsibilities, I, certainly as I look at it, of the man in a Christian world is to be protective of his family. But one of the things the woman has to do too, and to do that, can he do that without dealing with, with what's selfish in his own character? His misguided sense of honor, let's say, if we look at Quentin or... On the other side, though, we see these women who are vicious creatures, who are selfish and possessive. and So part of the challenge for modern women, at least as these writers are showing it, is that woman has something in her that she, she has to take a look at. Welty has opened that. She's a woman. And so the, we, we've been looking at the inside of man and woman from the very beginning in the Iliad and the Odyssey. We've been looking at what it is that defines a man on the honor code and what it is that, you know, and, and we've, we've seen that in all the works, one of the themes that's basic from the beginning is the difficulties between the sexes with regard to these things. It's so fundamental. Doctor, did you? My wife's giving me that look. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? What did he, say? He, said he hates that when that happens, so you get the look. <laughs> so do I. I'm going to put a good spin on it. She's being very protective of me right now. Actually, she's being very protective of you guys, I think. Of, of me. She's saying, be careful of me. Uh, next week, I'm going to take up the, the genre wheel. Can you take a look? I'm not going to go into it, but can you just take a look at this thing and read it over the week? It's not long, and it, 
I think it will be interesting to you. But take a look at this, because these are the various points of view. The reason I wanted to raise, I'll pick it up next week because we'll, we'll have a little bit more time. Take a look at the various ways in which writers look at us as humans. I've indicated five. How many of us understand, how many of us are aware that those possibilities are present to us, that we can look in the world in so many different ways with different results. So I just want you to take a look at this because we've been experiencing in all of our stories, it's various points of view, and they're fundamentally different. They lead to different results. Are we aware of that in our own lives, in the way that we look at each other, or, or are, we, are we too narrowed in the way that we look at things? So take a look at this and next week we'll, we'll pick it up. Okay, let's look at Hemingway. I'd like to look at um, three stories, Macomber first and then Hills and the Clean Well-Lighted Place. And I'd like to do this briefly if I can. I'm not going to do justice to these, but... The, the action of Macomber, the short happy life of Francis Macomber. Notice the name Francis because Francis is a very feminine sort of name. I think that's deliberate on, on Hemingway's part. The action takes this form. It's, it's really interesting. I, I wish we had time. If anybody wants to make a comment on it, I'd be glad to hear it. The action begins after Macomber's failure, his cowardice. He went out to catch the lion. We don't know what happened at the beginning of the story. He come back to camp with Macomber embarrassed and his wife, Caddy, cutting. And then we shift the perspective. We, we go back in time and what happened is revealed to us. They went out in the morning and they hunted the lion. Wilson took him to a drop-off point close enough for him to get a good shot and he took a shot and hit him and took another shot and hit him again. So it looked like what he was doing was, was good. But we know from the story that he, that he stayed up through the night, he heard the, the lion's growl, that through the night as he listened, he got more and more frightened and almost paralyzed. He went into the hunt shaking and he didn't want anybody to know that he was shaking. And a couple of times in that, that stretch of time when Wilson is driving the car and after he wounds the lion, he says repeatedly to Wilson, I don't want to go in, you go in. He makes clear that he's, his fear is that great that he doesn't want to pursue it, he just soon let it go. Wilson says no because the lion might attack other people. But that's not the issue. For Wilson, the issue is being a man. You know from the story that Wilson's whole attitude is that for a man to do this, he has to stand up and do these things. If he doesn't, he's not a man. So they go into the bush and the lion attacks. And as soon as the lion charges him, Wilson or McCumber turns around and runs. His wife sees it, Wilson sees it, and both of them are embarrassed. And obviously, McCumber is too. The if you turn, let's see, and I don't have mine. About, gosh, Doc, help me out here, can you? 
it's it starts on the first page. It was now lunch. There's a shift in time. It starts about uh, 10 pages in, seven, eight pages in, where it says it had started. I'm in my book. I don't have the handout. It started the night before. Right. What page? That's bottom of page five. Bottom of page, good. Bottom of page five. It started the night before when he'd wakened and heard the lion roaring. You know what happens. He, um, he, he, he listens through the night and gets... Um, frightened more and more and on five pages later it's it starts with the paragraph that McCumber stepped out of the curved opening of the side of the front seat onto the step down page eight. page eight take a look at that because it's interesting Hemingway does this twice for a moment even though we're in a social world involving people and getting things from their point of view, suddenly he shifts. I don't remember a writer ever doing this before. I mean, in, in a serious writing close to tragedy. He presents things from the point of view of the lion. The lion still stood looking majestically and coolly towards this object. What's that object? The car. Towards this object that his eyes only showed in silhouette, bulking like some super rhino. As if the language, you know, a lion had language to identify it. Um, and then he sees the figure step out of it, and then he feels the shots, so that we actually get the feeling of the lion, his sensations, in the midst of this hunt. You know what happens on two pages later. Macomber's wanting to get out of it. Oh, they'll go in with us. It's their shahuri. You see, they signed on for it. They don't look too happy, though, do they? I don't want to go in there, said Macomber. It was out before he knew he said it. Wilson is getting more and more, and more embarrassed because Macomber seems to be shaming himself. He's not doing what Wilson believes a man should do. Um, several pages later, we get the point of view of the lion again, 35 yards into the grass. Has anybody got that paragraph? Bottom of 10. Bottom of 10. 35 yards into the grass, the big lion lay flattened out. His ears were back, were down. He had turned at bay as soon as he had reached. Um, with the wound through his lungs that brought a thin, foamy red to his mouth each time he breathed, his flanks were wet. Then we get this discussion of the difficulties that, that Macomber has been having with his wife, the two of them with each other. Um, the time shift occurs about five pages later. All in all, they were known as a comparatively happy married couple. With God, you are right on it. Um, they were known as a good couple, but they've they've a number of times come to a breaking point, but didn't break, and that it ends with these descriptions. The same colonists reported them on the verge at least three times in the past that they had been, but they always made it up. They had a sound basis of union. Margot was too beautiful for Macomber to divorce her, and Macomber had too much money for Margot ever to leave him. Just for a minute, let me stop. What's the basis of their marriage? Let's just get that on the, huh? Superficiality. It's superficial. Beauty and money. Say it again. Beauty and money. Beauty and money. And it's been that way since the Iliad, booty and Helen's beauty. 
what does that say about the man and woman? What are the I mean, what what goes on inside their minds and hearts? I'm taking it for granted it's not love. What is it? Huh? Using using each other. Yeah. Isn't it using each other? I mean, each one is an object to satisfy. She wants money, security, everything that wealth will provide. He wants the status of having a beautiful. Are things you need to, by the way, this is the Iliad for those of you. Have things changed for 2,000 years? Um, that is, they're both in some basic way selfish. There isn't a concern for the other or the good of another. That's the nature of love. They're each in it for themselves. It was now about three in the morning and Francis Macomber, who had been asleep a little while after he stopped thinking. So this is through the night. Now we're back to that time shift, okay? We're back in that day after the, the embarrassment. Um, it's late in the evening and suddenly his wife comes into the tent. Where have you been, Macomber asked in the darkness. Hello, she said, are you awake? Where have you been? I just went out to get a breath of air. You did like hell. What do you want me to say, darling? Where have you been? Out to get a breath of air. That's a new name for it. You are a bitch. Well, you're a coward. All right. So what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're justifying. They're justifying the selfishness in each of them by pointing out the failures of the other. By the way, if you've read Milton's Paradise Lost, that's exactly what Adam and Eve do right after the fall. I mean, that's, that's the shift in love. That if you turn your love away from God, you can't love ordinately anymore. Whatever you do will be for yourself, and you will use your mind to justify whatever you do. Nothing as far as I'm concerned, but please let's not talk, darling, because I'm very sleepy. You think that I'll take anything. I know you will, sweet God. <laughs> hmm. Well, I won't. Please, darling, let's not talk. I'm so very sleepy. There wasn't going to be any of that. You promised there wouldn't be. Well, there is now, she said sweetly. You said we made this trip that there would be none of that. You promised. Yes, darling. That's the way I meant it to be, but the trip was spoiled. Is there anything that a man and woman can't do to justify what they're doing with the faults of another person? So here we are. Bless you, bless, bless you. you. Bless you. And I'm trusting you're all hearing that darling. And, um, she is firm in um, refusing to stay in camp. She's, she wants to go. What's her motive for going? She wants them. Huh? She wants them. <laughs> yeah, and probably to see her husband fail both. I mean, she's, well, by the way, you all know what happened that night. She and Wilson slept. Just for a moment, I mean, I just want, what would happen if she left Macomber and took up with Wilson? Flush that out between her and Wilson. What do you, why not? He didn't have money. He couldn't, like, keep her the way she Would he want to? No. No. Would she want to be with him for, I mean, there's nothing they do is for the right reason. Um, so, even if they did get together, there's, there's no sense that there would be any improvement or any goodness to go to, because both of them are full of vanity and pride. They look down on people. As a woman, she looks down on her husband. The, the nature of their relationship is competitive. She wants to be better than he is. If he fails, she has a reason for criticizing him. 
Same thing with her, so. And Wilson brings an extra wide cot, remember? Why? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he's promiscuous. I mean, every woman. He said. Every wife. Right, he said most of the women come. Right. Yeah. They, they, they be good until there's like safari with the yes. beautiful woman. I'm going to skip that because obviously you guys have read this and you see what happens in the buffalo chase is sort of amazing and it represents a world change for McCumber. He gets out of the car when the car is going fast, is in a hurry, takes two shots and gets the lead bull, Wilson helps him with the next and then they go after the third and then they face a similar situation that they faced with the lion. They have to go into the brush to see that the first one was actually killed and this is what happens. But um, turn to, it's about four pages from the end, five pages, six pages. It's that exchange with all of them when he, he is experiencing the elation of having succeeded in what he did. It's not going to be a damn bit like the lion, Wilson told her. Did you want another drink, McComber? Thanks. Yes, McComber said. He expected the feeling he had about the lion to come back, but it did not. For the first time in his life, he really Bottom felt holy without fear. What is it? Bottom of 17. Bottom of 17. Thanks. For the first time in his life, he really felt holy without fear. Instead of fear, he had a feeling of definite elation. What's his wife's response to what's happening? Fear. Fear. Again, and something close to losing control. Um, the next page, by God, that was a chase, he said, I've never felt any such feeling. Wasn't it marvelous, Margaret? I hated it. Why? I hated it. Why does she hate it? Yeah. Did everybody hear that? No. Say it again. She, she now believes that he's got enough self-confidence and strength that he might actually leave her right. before she right. wasn't worried about it. This unsettles her, obviously. Um, a few lines down, cleans out your liver, said Wilson. Damn funny thing happened to people. McComber's face was shiny. You know, something did happen to me, he said. I feel absolutely different. His wife said nothing and eyed him strangely. Go down. That's it, Wilson. He recalls this line from Shakespeare. This is from one of the Henry plays. <coughs> that he quotes, by my troth, I care not. A man can die but once. This is Henry at one of these exalted moments when Henry's really taking command of England in the wars against France and does some really amazing things. By my truth, I care not a man can die but once. We owe God a death and let it go which way it will. He that dies this year is quit for the next. God, extraordinary line. It's got Hemingway too, though. Isn't it? Hmm? I said that's Hemingway too, isn't it? Wait, because I'm going to... Because that's going to go to my... Um, going down, it had taken a long, a strange chance of hunting, the sudden precipitation into action without opportunity for worrying beforehand to bring this about with McConger. But regardless of how it happened, it had most certainly happened. Look at the beggar now, Wilson thought. It's that some of them stay little boys so long, Wilson thought. Sometimes all their lives, their figures stay boyish when they're 50. The great American boy men. Damn strange people, but he liked this McComber now. So they go into the brush and think the, the buffalo is dead and then suddenly they realize it's not and they have to start firing. McComber does, Wilson steps aside to get a side shot at him because he has more to aim at there. McComber standing his ground. 
And the buffalo's charging. He's hit him, keeps hitting the horns, but he's hit him fatally. And then suddenly this happens. This is two pages from the end. Um, it, it begins in the paragraph, he's dead in there, Wilson said. Good work. What page is that? 20. 20. Go down some. Um, Wilson, who was ahead, was kneeling, shooting, and McComber as he fired, and unhearing his shot and the roaring of Wilson's gun, saw fragments like slate burst from the huge boss of the horns. When the head jerked, he shot again at the wide nostrils and saw the horns jolt again and fragments fly, and he did not see Wilson now, and aiming carefully, this thing is coming right at him. For a man to aim carefully means he's not running, he's not doing what he did before, he is standing, something's happened, he's standing on his ground. He did not see Wilson now aiming carefully, shot again with the buffalo's huge bulk almost on him and his rifle almost leveled with the oncoming head, nose out, and he could see the little wicked eyes and the head started to lower and he felt a sudden white hot blinding flash explode inside his head and that was all he ever felt. Wilson had ducked to one side to get his, he, he brings the buffalo down. Um, and we learn, you all know what happened, M Mrs. McComber shot and hit McComber in the head. Go down to the end. That was a pretty thing to do, he said in a toneless voice. He would have left you too. Stop it, she said. Of course it's an accident, he said. I know that. Stop it, she said. Don't worry, he said. There will be a certain amount of unpleasantness, but I'll have some photographs taken that will be very useful at the inquest. There's the testimony of the gun bearers and the driver, too. You're perfectly all right. By the way, Mrs. McComber had what on Wilson? That he'd broken several of the rules. Of right. So he knew that she had something on him the way he did on that, which is one reason why they would not have. I mean, the same rivalry. The, 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 what's it between them is the struggle for power to be the one on top. Will be very useful at the inquest. There's the testimony of the gun bearers and the driver too. You're perfectly all right. Stop it, she said. There's a hell of a lot to be done, he said, and I'll have to send a truck off to the lake to wireless for a plane to take the three of us into Nairobi. Why didn't you poison him? That's what they do in England. Stop it, stop it, stop it, the woman cried. Wilson looked at her with his flat blue eyes. I'm through now, he said. I was a little angry. I've begun to take your husband, I've begun to like your husband. Oh, please stop it, she said. Please, please stop it. That's better, Wilson said. Please, it's much better. Now I'll stop. Let's just, I want to take a moment and then I want to get to the other two stories really quickly. How do we understand what just happened? No? Which part? Which part? Say what? Do you mean whether or not she Whatever you want to say. How do we understand what just happened? Well, that's the question. How would you answer? Um, I think she was an accident. Do you? Mm -hmm. I think she was jealous. I think she did it on purpose. I think she was a darn big shot. Can the two of you talk to each other right now? I know how you like engaging some of the women in this class. <laughs> Fred, Fred, <laughs> Fred, how, why? I mean, why would you say? What would you say to I, the only reason I say that is that, you know, if you, if you go back to, she's clearly worried, scared mm -hmm. that he's going to leave her. And she's thinking, well, if he leaves me, I'm going to have nothing. Yeah. And she's probably as well. She what? Oh, she's probably, probably as well. well. <laughs> yeah. does, does Hemingway, 
give us an answer. He does not. Never does. Right. Never does. It's one of the powers of this that he leaves it open. It seems to me you can say this. We don't know for sure it has the marks of an accident. That's not the way Wilson sees it. And it seems to be not the way that she sees it confronted with him. But one of the questions we have to ask wherever, whatever side you come down on is, given the what we've learned about her as a woman, what she does as a woman. Even if she named it the buffalo, was there some unconscious? Mm -hmm. Let me put it differently, because I talked about this with Milton's Eve. After the fall, be because the love of God gets turned on ourselves to, in a selfish way, when somebody threatens us in our loves, to what lengths will we go to protect that? what we want. And we know, that we, particularly in our modern world, women are capable of murder. I mean, they, so, the, so, the, so the serious question is, we don't know, but, but was that wanting to murder in her, her heart? I mean, is a depth in her heart being exposed in this story? And we have to ask it. I, I'm with Fred on this one. Well, look at the gun she had. I mean, there's no way. <laughs> so anyway, what we're looking at is very, very brutal thing. This is a world, again, without God. And remember Dante, what we learned in the depths of hell is that there's, even Christ said this to us all, there is a murder in every one of our souls. Do women see it? I mean, the women are innocent, pretty. The women we've been looking at in these stories are, are pretty vicious here. Um, she's a... It's, it's hard to come away with, from this without seeing her as wanting to kill him because she's, she sees that he's changed and, and the threat to her facing that is really great. And she would be without money too. Right. right. Now she'll be a wealthy widow. Right. Mm -hmm. Quickly, I, I want to ask this story and then I'm going to quickly look to the other two. The other day, the last time we met, I said the settings in all these stories, in Eudora Welty, Hemingway, all the great writers, the setting is a metaphor for the action. How is the setting here a metaphor for the action? Well, good. Jungle and what else? And a hunt. And what's the nature of a hunt? Kill or be killed. Yeah. A predator and a prey. And what, he what Hemingway is clearly showing us here is how much in the modern marriage does, does that dynamic exist? When, when what defines your marriage is self-interest, that what you want is something for yourself and you don't get it, what will happen? So just stop and think about that for a moment. If the setting is a metaphor for the action, he's showing us that there's something. So even though it's in the jungle, I mean, it's, it's dealing with animals, well, we're seen as something really bestial in human nature. A, a predator and a prey, a killer, and the, the killed. So he, this, this is the darkness of Hemingway. I mean, he's showing a modern world. We've been, this is where we've been. Quickly, because I want to ask this question. What's, in um, Hills Like White Elephants, what's the setting? Crossroads. Um, hmm? How is that a metaphor for the action? It's a crossroad. 
And it's interesting, how does that define the action? It's good. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, that if you look at the man, the American, and the, the girl, I guess, cheating, if you will, mm -hmm. um, there's, they're at a crossroads. Right. Uh, I don't know if you want me to continue or do you want to pick up from here? No, go ahead. Uh, you know, I, obviously, the, well, my conclusion is the operation that they're discussing is an abortion. Right. Mm -hmm. And he wants her to have the abortion. She has come to the point where she's not sure that's what she wants. And they're trying to discuss it. She's trying to discuss it, hence the white elephant in the room. And uh, he's not willing to discuss it. He, he, he keeps saying he'll let her do it, but yeah, saying, right. Well, whatever you want, but he yeah. doesn't really mean it. Right. And she realizes that the relationship is probably come to an end. Yeah. So I would say crossroads is the metaphor. Yeah, crossroads, and I and I would say cross purposes. That you're, it's an in between place. In, I mean, it's going to Madrid and uh, Barcelona. Barcelona, but it's almost as if it's going nowhere. I mean, you don't know where they're going, which way. Or it's a perfect image for a couple at a crossroads and at cross purposes. There's nothing they do that's together. Everything he does seems to be in her interest, but he keeps saying it's just simple. It's just simple. It'll be okay. And for her, it's not even having a child. It's that she wants assurances that they'll go on because they live their life, as she says, for pleasure and for drinks. Seeing new sights, drinking. That's all they do in their life. For him, he doesn't want to lose that. So what's at issue here is the life of a child. And it's left the couple that cross purposes. What's the uh, meaning of the setting in a clean, well-lighted place? How's that a metaphor for the action? A bar late at night. It's not a bar. It's not a bar. He says he doesn't like cat or bars. It's. I think he's he's lonely. He's abandoned. So he wants to be in a place where there's light. There's there are people. There's communication. You talking about the deaf old man or the waiter? The old man. The old man, yeah. Well, the waiter, too. Two, yeah. The old man. The old man. The elderly waiter. Yes, yes. Yeah, but it's late at night. Yes. But it's bright. Yeah. They're looking for light in the darkness. What is a clean, well-lighted place a metaphor for? I'm sorry? What's a clean, well-lighted place a metaphor for? Which is? Heaven. Sorry? Heaven. Yes. Escape. No, 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 no. It, it's a, really, I mean, it's a modern metaphor for heaven. It's the modern substitute for, what's heaven? I think we'll light a place. Sorry? Yes. God himself lights it. Yeah, but it's the whole place is yes. I mean it's radiant. Bright it's a condition. Comes from God, not look, from the sun. Look at look at the end, towards the end, because um, I'm sorry, I wanted to spend a little bit more time in both of them. I've got a couple of things to say about both, but I, I can sum it up. I really want to ask 
this question of you guys. At the end of a clean, well-lighted place, remember the old deaf man wanted to commit suicide. And the young ra waiter has no sympathy with him. He sees the old man as a nuisance. He wants to get some out. The old waiter feels sorry for him. And he's willing to stay over hours because he knows that sometimes people come up. Because everything about the older waiter and the old man is this longing to be with other people. And they're all alone. Everybody in this story is alone. Everybody in Hills Like White Elephant, the girl and the guy, are alone. The, the, the Macomber and his wife are isolated. People are not coming together. The old man, the old waiter, who's the better of the two waiters, he's kind and sympathetic. The, the other one is wants to get home so he can have sex with his wife. He's irritated because he has to stay. So he's a selfish man. The older waiter seems to be a good man. After he closes up the bar, this is what happens. Middle of the last page. Good night, said the younger waiter. Good night, the other said. Turning off the electric light, he continued the conversation with himself. It is the light, of course, but it's necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. You do not want music. Certainly you do not want music. Nor can you stand before a bar with dignity. doesn't like bars. Although that's all that's provided these hours. What did he fear? It was not fear or dread. It was a nothing that he knew too well. What's the definition of the modern world? We are surrounded by a nothingness. That's the... That's the the view in which we live, raise our kids, that nothing is important, nothing, there's nothing there. We're here on this island, there is no God, it's nothing. So what's plaguing them is the sense of a nothingness and the despair that it leads to, and we've talked about despair. It was a nothing that he knew too well, it was all a nothing, and a man was nothing too. These are the modern positions, we're just atoms. Some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it was all nada e pius nada, anada e pius nada, ar nada, who art nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, in nada as it is in nada. The Lord's prayer is reduced to nothing. So the, the appeal to God has been replaced by some response to the nothingness of the world that engulfs us. Give us this nada, our daily nada, and nada us our nada, as we nada our nadas, and nada us into our nada, but deliver. So nothingness is, has permeated the consciousness of this man. That's what he lives with. So the only hope is no longer a clean, well-lighted place that's transcendent. It's a clean, well-lighted. It's the analog of heaven here. Hail, nothing full of nothing, nothing is with thee. He smiled and stood before a bar. He goes in and asks for something. It was too late for conversation. Do you want another copita? The barman asked. No, thank you. Said the waiter and went out. He disliked bars and bodegas. A clean, well-lighted cafe was a very different thing. Now, without thinking further, he would go home to his room. He would lie in the bed, and finally, with daylight, he would go to sleep. After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Minnie must have it. What, what's the significance of that ending? After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it. He's comforted in thinking that others would share the same thing he had. But if it's not insomnia, what is it? It's keeping people up. He said to himself, it's probably only... Is it insomnia that's keeping this guy up? No. What is it? The, the nothing. Yeah. I mean, the, these guys are all existentialists. Yes, right? yeah. 
despair. Despair. And it's that glib way of casting over something. You know, the, the way you dismiss it. I mean, if you live in a world of nothing, what is your typical strategy toward dealing with anything? I mean, minimize it, explain it away. It's probably, it was probably only insomnia. Is that real? Absolutely not. I mean, what defines the character, the guy was going to kill himself, hang himself. So in each one of these stories, we're getting a view of modern man. Okay? Now, here's my question. Um, you all see the connection between the setting and the action. Yeah? The hunt. It's predatory. That's a defining image of modern marriage. People out for themselves and treating another as an object. Because if you can treat another as an object, you can do whatever you want with them. Man or woman. Um, a cross station, an in-between station that put the, is, is an expression of, of modern couples, particularly with respect to bringing life into the world. They, they, did, they ever, did they ever name the problem? Not once. <clears throat> Clean, well-lighted place. It's an analog for heaven. What's in place of it is nothing. A, a, a bar, a, a comfort. And what we see is people go because they're lonely and they want something. So all of these are very, very dark. Okay, now here's my question. And I really want to hear from you guys. Every one of these stories shows modern man in a condition of nothingness and facing despair. Yes? Is that fair? Think about this with um, Hills Like White Elephants because it'll, it'll illustrate it really well. White elephants are elephants in Thailand that the owners want to give up because they're of no use. And to have them is a burden. To maintain an elephant, you can imagine, is a great expense that most village people can afford. Why is that appropriate? Because that's an image of the child for the man, and even in some ways the woman. Okay? White elephants, so that's the, that's the hills like white elephants, that's the title of it. The girl is mentioning it in a cute way, but clearly for Hemingway, that's, that's an image like the setting that tells the story. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. The drink. The, that's, yeah, the anise, the Taurus, where's the, I can't, sorry. Oops, just wrong story. First page. Anis del Toro, seed of the bull. Seed of the bull. Yeah, how does that fit? Is everybody clear? How does that tell on the story? Joan. It's an allusion to him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does he care about a child? I mean, he's just a, in a bull. So think about that. The, the railroad station is a metaphor for the elephant. It's an image that she brings up that seems casually that has no relation to the thing and yet it points directly at the action. The drink, the anise del toro. The licorice, what's the nature of licorice? It tastes like licorice, the girl said, and put the glass down. That's the way with everything. Yes, she said, everything tastes of licorice, especially all the things you waited so long for, like absinthe, it's bitter. There's not an image in the story that doesn't tell. Now, is that the way it is in real life? 
Hemingway is an artist. There's nothing in the story that doesn't tell. Yeah? Okay, here's my, here's, and, and let me put this out. The issue in Comber and um, Cleanwell at a Place is this sense of dignity that he thinks a man should have. Because the, the closing description, the guy walks off and he's drunk. Remember the old man? But he said he was walking with dignity. And when the younger waiter's critical, he says, yeah, but watch him. He doesn't spill. He drinks with dignity. Hemingway's driving principle, the, the thing that defines him at the center of his life, is this dignity of a human, of a man. His phrase was, grace under fire. That's Hemingway. He thought what defined a man was the ability to seem as if he could surmount a difficulty and still be manly. Okay, here's my question. Um, when I read these, the, the artworks are masterful works of art. Hemingway clearly was one of the greatest artists of the just in terms of art. If you look at these stories, they're masterfully done. Just extraordinary as works of art. They show this very dark side to our human nature. And the ideal behind all of them for Hemingway was this manliness. Let me make a statement. You can argue with me, but what, what Hemingway tried to live by was what I understand as a pagan code that goes back to the Iliad, a pre-Christian world. It's Odysseus, Achilles. But with this difference, we know in the Iliad, Achilles could not become who he was meant to be until he accepted death. But one of the defining images of the pagan world was the sense of, a, of having this dignity and upholding yourself. It's very modern American. What I would say, what defines modern American is this sense that you can win at everything. You can stand up and surmount, overcome everything so that you're left with this dignity. What would Dante say to that? Not by yourself. Hmm? Not by yourself. Good, I mean, not by yourself. How important was social dignity to Dante? How many times did he pass out in the, in the comedian? <laughs> I mean, what's the difference between a pagan ideal of this dignity, this social respectability, this dignity that a man's supposed to have, and a Christian ideal? Cross, humiliation, if a man goes through his life, this is it, so sad. I mean, this is my, I've got to ask of you guys. If a man goes through his life believing that he has to do everything perfect in order to be loved, what will happen to that man? Despair. Despair. If a woman goes through life feeling she has to be perfect in everything she does, or she has to marry a man who is, and if he isn't, we know what will happen, what will happen to that woman? What in modern America encourages people to believe that they can do less than perfect and still be good or be loved? Is there anything in Hemingway's story? Was that not clear? I mean, it's stunning to me to th think of what a man must go through in his life. I think about movies like Die Hard. I mean, I can name a long list. Really, I mean, if you look at... For, and for Hemingway, love was not possible. When a man and woman come together in a Hemingway world, something happens to one of them to get that love apart. It won't happen. It doesn't happen. The closest thing he got to God, I think, is um, Old Man in the Sea, and the man walks away after he loses everything. 
That, that one, to me, is the finest work. If you look at the novels and all the short stories, there's the sense that a man has to do these great, he has to fight a bull, defeat a bull. He has to go to a hunt to show his manhood. What's the difference between going on a hunt to fight, to fight an, a, a, um, an animal on a safari and going to war? One of them's contrived, and you have to do that to show your bravery? It's a, everybody's doing it, right? Everybody's going on safari and has the story, so you gotta you know, have your have your stuffed animal up there. Yeah, and it's artificial. You can you're not going to war. You're not fighting for your country. You're not dying for your country. You're you're doing something to show how good you are. The trophies you will get in. And the women who go along with that, who want men to do that, what's going on in America? I mean, th this is a dark story, but I'm asking another question. From a Christian perspective, the cross is supposed to be central for us. If you're a man growing up in America and you feel like you have to win and succeed always, what's happened, what will happen when you don't? And if a woman grows up that way, or they marry each other, where are we? Sorry? Nada. Nada. <laughs> here's the, here's the, the, the strange thing about Heavenly. Here's the irony. For every one of his stories shows incredible aesthetic perfection. Think about clean, well-lighted place. Hills like White Elephant. The White Elephant. The drink. The licorice. There's nothing that doesn't tell. It's perfectly put together. He was a... He had... He had to do everything perfectly. If you grow up in America, and that's what drives you as a man, feeling you have to do everything well or you won't be loved, or as a woman thinking, I have to be successful at everything I do or I won't be loved. I mean, we've lost our Christian bearings. That's where I'm going, sorry. So it was meant to be a question. <laughs> Go ahead. It didn't work for him. Yeah, I don't even want to go there because to me it's no, just I don't, sad. I, think it's, I yeah. think it's, you know, it's kind of the whole issue with existentialism. Right? You keep searching for something that you never find. Didn't you say he converted at the end of his life? Yeah, Hemingway towards the end of his life did, closer, I mean it wasn't at the very end, but he, he, he became Catholic. And, yeah. Wait, I want to say, it's not just existentialism, Fred, that I'm, that I'm concerned about here. It's this American ideal that in a, because we are the strongest, greatest country in the world. If you, it's like ancient Rome after a Christian, after God has come into the world. And that wasn't true of Rome. It's like ancient Rome, that we are, we are the greatest nation in the world. If you're a man and woman growing up in our world, what does that mean for the psyche? If we look at the literature of these people and what it's showing, it's not just a sad comment on existentialism, it is. But insofar as it's American, it, to me, it's, it's, I mean, I read this stuff and I'm just appalled and sad to think about the, the man in Hemingway has to always perform. Bruce Willis in Die Hard had to kill 500 men before he could be reconciled with his wife. How many American movies show a man having to deal with 500 people to be reconciled with his wife? I mean, the disorders in our country with respect to success or power, humility in a Christian sense, a cross or not having to always be better than somebody. Look at sports, how important sports is in our country. There's a lot going on in America that these writers are indirectly opening windows on. And I think it's, it's not a reason for despair, 
as dark as it is. It's for me. It's a. It's a. Re, it's, it's a reaffirmation of our faith in, in some very very real way. Okay. Next week we look at Flannery O'Connor and and grotesque comedy, and it doesn't. It, it won't get any nicer. <laughs> You want to hold our next class at a well-lighted cafe?